Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This is the Entree Architect Podcast, episode 102. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. A dream for so many of us small firm architects. Design, build, and develop our own residential architecture. No rules, no limits, no clients. You make the decision for what gets built and what doesn't. There is much risk in residential development, but there's also much reward. Creative rewards, professional rewards, financial rewards. This week on the Entree Architect Podcast, I'm speaking with Jim Zack of San Francisco-based Zack DeVito Architecture about his risks and his rewards as an architect developer. This episode of the Entree Architect Podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, the easiest way to send invoices, manage expenses, and track your time. Learn more at freshbooks.com slash architect. Jim Zach, welcome to the Entree Architect Podcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for, for being here, spending some time with us. Uh, you're an architect based in San Francisco, California. Yes. Uh, so you're a little bit warmer than where I am right now. Uh, although, from what you say, not significantly warmer. but it, uh, A brisk 50 degrees in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it was 28 here this morning in New York, so I'd rather be where you are. Uh, you're a longtime friend of the show and, a, and a, a contributor on social media over the years. And, you know, for, for I've seen your name for a long time following That's Entree Architect. And so good to know. I appreciate you being there and for contributing to the community. Um, your your firm is, does some beautiful work, very high end, highly detailed architecture, a very broad range of project types for residential and small commercial and restaurants and all kinds of really interesting work. Uh, and you do design and construction. We do. So we're a design and build company. And then uh, main topic today, I think, is we also do development, which is uh, what's really true to my heart these days. Yeah, that's where I want to go. But before we go to the development story, I'd like to hear your origin story. I'd like to know 
where you discovered architecture, how long ago was that, and sort of give us that story from, from that point to where you are today. Sure. It's a good time to do that. We just did a little intro session in the office yesterday with a couple of new people, so we all uh, did our brief origin stories. So um, I didn't come into architecture like a lot of people I hear on your show with uh, you know, discovery at nine years old and had it in my, my heart. Um, I do think I got a, a drafting set for Christmas one year when I was nine or ten, but um, didn't stick very long. But, the seed was planted. Um, the seed was planted, I suppose. <laughs> I took a few drafting classes in high school, like a lot of us. But uh, um, my main introduction to architecture really came through construction. Um, my dad was, I guess you'd say, a remodeler and uh, started helping him out summers and after school when I was probably 14 or 15 years old. And um, that led into a full-time job as a carpenter after high school. I wasn't... Uh, really interested in college out of high school. I had other interests that I was pursuing and uh, distracting me from, from school and uh, just went to work for a small builder and um, I suppose I had an aptitude for construction and um, small builder with just three or four or five guys and we were all in our late teens and 20s and uh, in retrospect I'm not quite sure how we did it with that kind of crew but we, uh, we built houses for them and um, by the time I was in my late teens, 20, we were built a nine, 10 unit apartment building with four or five guys and pretty much learned everything there was to know about, about building relatively modest houses in California. Um, and from there started doing some work on my own and eventually decided I probably should go back to school and get, get an education. And, uh, like a lot of people at that age, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do and, uh, sort of naturally just went from construction to drafting and drawing and always loved the drawings I'd see around construction sites and uh, just kind of eased into architecture school. Um, How old were you when you did that, when you made that decision? 20, 22 or 23. Mm-hmm. And um, I probably took four or five years um, off of education after high school. I got my bachelor's degree 10 years after my high school degree. So, Well, you were, you um, were being educated. You were just being educated I, in a very different way. Absolutely. Um, but I think I like to think that I, I was sort of perfectly trained for what I've ended up doing, but in a very happenstance way. Um, I started going to a junior college in Monterey in California, and they didn't have any architecture. They had a really wonderful lady who taught drafting, but you know it's typical orthographic projection and things like that. And um, loved that, just loved the technical aspect of that kind of drawing. And uh, Towards the end of my two years at junior college, they did finally offer an architecture class. And around that time, my dad uh, owned a little house in a neighborhood that was a series of small houses built on big lots. But a savvy real estate guy determined that all those lots were originally 25 by 100 foot lots, but built on in twos and threes back at the turn of the 1900s and realized that he could tear down the little house on a big lot and build three small houses. And my dad had a lot like that. And uh, I can remember I was about 23 and he brought me over and said, we're going to tear this down and build two houses like that guy across the street. And um, you help me and you can have one when we're finished. And I went to the architecture class teacher and said, can I um, design these two houses for my project? So I did that. So I did my first development with my dad when I was about 23. Um, won't ever tell anybody where those houses are. <laughs> <laughs> not but, in the portfolio. <laughs> yeah, not in the portfolio. Um, but it was a great experience. You know, we did the whole thing in terms of um, permitting and uh, acquisition and financing and built them and sold them and kind of had to go through the whole thing. And I guess I grew up around a dinner table where we talked about real estate all the time. So um, kind of understood the general aspect of it and the lingo of real estate very early. And, um, you know, that was my early experience with designing and building. And um, from there, went to architecture school and was a, you know, older undergraduate student and quite dedicated. Um, what, ins- always- what inspired you to become an architect? Be- being a, the oh. a son of a, of a builder and sort of living in that world, what, what sort of drew you to the design end of things? You know, it wasn't design, actually. It, it really was more of a making thing. I mean, I'm a maker. I, yeah. I make things, and I like to make things, and I've always liked to make things. And um, I think, again, like a lot of people in college at a young age searching, I, I had no idea. You know, what are you going to do? Study business, study history, and, and um, just this sort of natural progression from building to taking drafting classes to drawing and then building these houses. It just 
one thing led to another. It wasn't design. I actually didn't understand the concept of design. I didn't understand the, the artistic aspect of architecture. It was really coming from building and, and, and learning how to draw. You know, I can remember my first real architecture studio at Berkeley, 90 kids in a class. And, and it took about two weeks for people to understand and, and learn and realize that I actually knew how to build things. And I knew that how to draw a wall and I knew how to, how to detail. And in a, in a way, I think my my two years at Berkeley as an undergraduate was an undoing of all the things I learned as a builder because I came from this very hands-on, very dry sort of perspective. And it really was um, the place that I learned about design. And I, you know, I guess was pretty good at it. And it kind of surprised me. I'm not artistic. I don't draw. I can't draw. I still can't draw. Um, don't do anything else artistic, but um, I can do architecture. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of good that I discovered it. And uh, I come to design sort of my own way, um, which I guess you know, describes a lot of my life as I just make my own path. Um, so I did my two years of undergraduate at Berkeley, I guess two and a half, um, and uh, applied for graduate school but wanted to take time off. And instead of going and getting a job, I bought an old rundown house and remodeled it for a year <laughs> and uh, then went to graduate school, um, finished graduate school and uh, opened an office. Um, pretty much immediately out of graduate school. Um, I'd had a few internships here and there, worked for a few teachers here and there, um, interned in Japan for four months um, on an on a exchange program at graduate school, which was great. Worked for a giant company in a big high-rise in downtown Tokyo. Um, but I'd say all in, I had about a year of experience in architecture out of graduate school and um, literally just opened an office and started and just uh, solo, just you. Um, yeah, pretty much just me. I shared space with a friend, um, a guy named Cass Smith, who's pretty successful now as well. Has an office in New York and here in the city. And um, we just shared space. And uh, um, I started off making things for people. I interviewed with an architect I'd met, a pretty young, successful architect in the city. And I'd met him. Yeah did an exhibit of models and I was a maker. I was, you know, the guy who made really cool models in school and he did a, a model show and, and put a couple of my models in his show and met him and went to interview for him. And his office was across the street where, from where I rented my little space. And uh, he asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm looking for a job, but I just rented this space across the street so I can have a little workshop. And he goes, oh, well, what do, you, what do you need a job for? And he goes, I need a conference table for a project. You want to make that for me? So my first job was making a conference table for this guy. And, and that was it, you know, never got a job, um, more or less. And you designed and built the, the table? Yeah, he kind of designed it and I made it. And, and it's just one thing led to another. And we spent a few years fabricating things for other people and, and just slowly grew from that into, into architecture. Um, one of my early clients was uh, um, this house that I remodeled under after undergraduate. Um, I sold it. Um, but I sold it to someone who was renting rooms, so I ended up renting a room in the house I designed and, and uh, stayed there all through graduate school. And then her parents uh, hired me to remodel a house for them pretty soon after I started. Um, and just, you know, one thing led to another. Just did like a lot did you that. start the firm before you were licensed? I did, actually. I did. Yeah. yeah. And I uh, won't go into details there, but like a lot of us, you know, just sort of figured out ways to get the experience yeah. on, my, on my papers. And, you know, I took the test back in the days when it was a thousand people in a room with drafting. Right. Papers. That wasn't that rare back then. I mean, there, there, no. were, there were many architects doing that. Yeah. So either working um, for somebody else or working, you know, working for themselves, but, but, you know, sort of being without going through the whole exam process, they would yep. get experience. Yeah, and we were doing the scale of projects that it didn't matter that much, but yeah. pretty quickly it became clear I needed a license. But I, I don't know, when, back in the day you were pretty proud of your pass rate for the nine exams you took, and um, you know I forget this 25% pass rate for the design exam, and I passed all nine the first time. So I felt even though I might have stretched things a little bit on the experience, I felt like I was pretty qualified. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so development is in your blood. I mean, so development's in my blood. I mean, I really did it from the very beginning and um, did construction um, from the very beginning and uh, got licensed as an architect, got licensed as a contractor um, very early. Um, this was uh, started my office in 1991, so 24 years now. Um, had a workshop for a while where we fabricated things and uh, just slowly grew and added employees and we'd make things and started getting design jobs and added design jobs. And, uh, and six or seven years after I started, my wife's also an architect, Lisa DeVito, and um, 
she's my partner. So once we got enough work where we felt like uh, we could support both of us, she quit the job she'd had and uh, came and joined me. So we uh, changed the name from Zach Architecture to Zach DeVito Architecture, and uh, and uh, that was it. You know, it's kind of slowly grown from there. Um, your strength is making and and developing. What is your wife's strength? She's a designer. Yeah, she's absolutely a designer. Um, I'd say that that that's her strength. Um, I think, like a lot of husband wife partnerships, they they grow out of relationship more than they grow out of um, intention. Um, you think of a great partnership in architecture. I think it's two or three people getting together, and like you're saying, what's the strengths and what do people bring to it? And we didn't do that. You know, we just it was it was a a partnership of relationship, and it still worked. It still works. It still works well. But yeah, she's, I, she's but a, it works because you have separate strengths. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you both had the same strengths, it may not be as powerful. We're both designers, though, so at the end of the day, we still butt heads. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, the best projects we've done actually are the ones we've done for ourselves, where we built houses that we lived in, and um, and it actually those they were sometimes the easiest. Unlike um, some of the stories you hear, we pretty compatible in what we like. So you started right from day one as a design build firm. That was um, the, it was it sort of it started it started. I mean, you were making from, from we were making one. things. We were making small scale things, um, and when the opportunity arose to do projects where we could build, we built them as well. So was that a plan or was that an evolution? It was a bit of an evolution, um, but uh, I think my main motivation when I was young was to not work for anybody, um, just to do my own thing and be able to. Um, control my destiny, I guess, and do the kind of projects I wanted to work on. And, and uh, it's worked out. You know, so. Um, so what type of projects do you do now? So um, over the years, we've done a, a lot, like you described, a lot of residential, like most small firms, um, and a bit of commercial. And early on, we got a project doing a restaurant, which was great because I love food. Um, and it started off, I got asked to design a sign. And, for the restaurant and then the conversation led from a sign to do you have an architect and it was no and it was a really low budget project and we ended up uh, hooking up with this guy uh, Joseph Manzari and um, he was a pretty accomplished chef and it was his first project on his own and he had no contractor and um, not a lot of money and we helped him and we we did a lot of the construction. Um, there really wasn't a contractor. We weren't really the contractor for the whole project. We just did parts of it, and, and he managed parts of it. And um, But it turned out to be one of the most popular new restaurants of the year. And all the other chefs in town would go and hang out there after, after work and late hours. And uh, we met another guy at that project that turned into another restaurant. And another guy at that project turned into another restaurant. And they were also very popular, successful restaurants. And so within a couple of years, we were one of the go-to restaurant designers in the city. And uh, since then, we've probably done, lost count, 150, 175 yeah. restaurants. Not a bad building type to be yeah. in, in San Francisco. It's great. We are <laughs> definitely the food city. And uh, we have a you know project that's three-star Michelin and, uh, and all that. Um, so these days, um, it's a combination, uh, residential, um, growing from typical San Francisco one and two unit infill projects to... Um, slightly larger scale. Um, at the moment, we have a nice mix of, uh, I think we have a one-unit, two-unit, three-unit, four-unit, five-unit, nine-unit project, so, um, and a couple restaurants. Um, then a few other, you know, retail spaces and a couple preschools and a mix of things. But um, these days, it's mostly residential um, and a mix of projects for clients and for ourselves. And uh, Do you build everything you design? Absolutely not. Um, it's definitely a, a small portion of what we design, and it varies. Um, sometimes how, it. How do you be, choose what you build and what you don't? Um, I think the, f to be honest, the first question I ask is: Is it the project I want to build? Um, but that's an internal question. Yeah. Um, is it the right project type? Is it the right budget? Is it the right client? Maybe the first first that's the most important. Is it the right client? Um, but after that internal question, the first question I have, and I'm very sincere about this, is what's the best thing for the project? Um, is, it, is it the best that we do it, or is it better to, to hire someone else? Um, we have a, a fantastic new ground-up single-family house in the Napa Valley right now, an amazing huge budget, which would put most of the country to shame. 
And um, we had a long conversation for months about whether we should build it, but it's about 75 miles from our office, and it's a very long 75 miles just given traffic. And um, as much as I would have loved to build it, it's an amazing site, amazing budget, amazing client. It just, at the end of the day, we decided it just wasn't the best thing for the client. He'd better serve to get a, an archi- uh, a builder who's building kind of estate rural homes, and that's not what we do. We build really great modern infill houses. <laughs> so... Um, so really the decision is what's best for the project. Um, so it varies. We, we, uh, right now we only have a couple of construction projects and 20 design projects. Um, have quite a few in the pipeline that could go to design build. Um, but it, then it becomes a decision with the client. Um, and I think they're also what's best for the project. Budget always comes in. It's a very difficult conversation about um, design build works best when the client's not 100% motivated by budget, I think. Um, Everybody expects design build to be less expensive, and I think it's a fallacy. Um, I think we can save money on CA as an architect, but um, as we all know, there's a lot of different types of builders and scales of builders and builders with different budgets. And for every project, we can find low, medium, and high. And so um, I'd say we're a good medium, and we know and work with some of the best builders around, and we've worked with some of the cheapest. And um, I think we, are, we fit in the middle, but when we have projects where the client's motivated by budget, I don't think we're a good fit. When we have clients that are motivated by the end result and a desire to craft a house perfect for them, then it's a really good fit. So those are the kind of things I'm looking for uh, when we're building. So Yeah, we're, we do some construction management at 5Cat Studio and, and we do the same thing with, we used to offer it to anybody Mm-hmm. And then very quickly we learned we needed to be more selective on who we work with with that as an architect because we're doing it as construction management as an advisor. We don't have a separate construction company, and so this right. is additional time for the staff that's working. And, uh, you know, it's it it really does matter on the client and the type of project. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to FreshBooks for their support as a platform sponsor of Entree Architect. Because as a platform sponsor, FreshBooks has provided funding and support for our overall mission to become an influential force in the profession of architecture. They recognize the need for small firms to build better businesses in order to be better architects. FreshBooks is the easy-to-use accounting software designed to help us small firm owners get organized save time invoicing, and get paid faster. It takes care of invoicing, expense tracking, estimating, reporting, and it all happens out in the cloud so you have access to your information from anywhere that you have access to the internet. And as an exclusive offering for just us, the Entree Architect community, I've asked FreshBooks to join me on video and show us around the product. Because I know that once you see how easy it is to set up and how simple it is to use, you might be interested in converting to FreshBooks just like I did. Tim Lee of FreshBooks and I produced a whole series of videos and they're available for free right now at entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo. That's entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo. And when you're ready to give FreshBooks a try, go over to freshbooks.com slash architect. That's freshbooks.com slash architect and sign up for your free 30-day trial. Give it around. See what you see what you like, see how you like it. And be sure that when you're there, enter Entree Architect in the how did you hear about us section. So do you, are you structured as a, it is a separate construction company? Yes. Yeah, so we actually have two companies, which I, I believe is the most common business approach for architects that go into construction. Um, I think we all, as architects, know the um, idea and definition of design build can be different for different people. There's the AIA definition, which is a collaboration of big firms doing big projects, and it's not what we do. I think the more common design build approach in residential construction is usually builders who learn how to draw plans and get permits, um, collaborate with an architect or hire a draftsperson or something. Um, and then there's the true architect-led design build firms, um, which are some great ones around. But I think more of them are contractor-led design build firms. And I think somehow they're able to 
manage their companies as a single entity. Um, their focus is construction and design is secondary and they're not putting themselves out as architects. Um, I think when you start as an architect, um, you have another focus and you have liability issues that a builder who's drafting doesn't have. So um, it became clear to us pretty early on, 15 years ago, that um, to make this work, you have to have two companies. We tried one company, two checkbooks. We tried a lot of different things. But at the end of the day, the insurance companies don't like it when you're doing both activities and if you can separate it legally. Um, so we have two California S-Corps. And, and do you have a, a full-time crew or do you subcontract? How does, you, how does the construction um, business work? We're like most small residential contractors. So we have a couple of really key people. Um, I have a partner in our development projects who's a builder. Um, the construction is still under my name usually. We're the entity of record as far as contractor. Um, and he doesn't work for us as an employee, but we're doing projects together. And he primarily works on projects that are development projects that we're doing together, but he also helps on our client projects and we pay him as a 1099 consultant. Um, we have a couple of really key site guys. Um, one's trained as an architect, but has worked with us for six, 15 years, 14 years, and just prefers to be on site. Um, and then like a lot of small builders, we have a stable of eight or 10 carpenters that we keep pretty busy most of the time. So um, we're usually five to 10 people working, but we have uh, a staff and most of them are at this point pretty familiar with a contemporary way of building. Um, we don't do crown molding. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they uh, are not, very familiar. Not unless it's made out of steel. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, it's incredible. Thing. So, you know, we've, we've kind of trained these guys to work in alternative materials and, uh, and have a sense of the minimal detailing. And, and my, my development partner, Bruce, is fantastic. Um, he works out as many details on site as we do in the office. And uh, sometimes we don't have to worry about it, um, which is great. It's fantastic. So, so, so the design-build end of things, um, building your own projects, that certainly lends itself to development. So what type of work are you doing from the development end of things? Yep. So uh, at the moment, we have two active projects. One's at the very end of construction, another one's in design. Um, they're high-end, modern, residential. Um, we're doing a one project now that's a uh, 4,000-square-foot house in Mill Valley, which is there a client, or are these houses being built on spec? Built, built on spec, so um, financed by us. The equity is financed by us. Um, these two projects, uh, the house in Mill Valley, um, 100% equity by me and my partner Bruce. Um, and we have another project, which is a rare vacant lot in San Francisco. We kind of stumbled across and competed to get. Um, I think there was 15 offers on that. We're we live in a pretty superheated market. I, I yeah. really almost don't want to go into numbers, <laughs> but uh, you know, vacant lot was a million three fifty for wow. a twenty-five by hundred foot piece of land. That's going to be some spectacular house to it's make that work. House. Yeah, <laughs> so it's 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 two units, and uh, we have an amazingly cumbersome uh, entitlement process. Um, I have a remodeling project right now. It's it's not a small one. It's it's converting a house to three units, horizontal edition, vertical edition. Um, and we're 17 months into permitting and we haven't made it to the building department yet. That's planning. No, We've had neighbor protests and negotiations and everything you can imagine, but that's, my, that's the current climate in San Francisco. Um, architects moan and groan day in and day out, but it's, it's a year to get a permit if you have to involve the planning department at least. So and, and every new building is going through planning. Right? Yes. Yeah. So so that's the kind of project we're doing um, speculatively. Um, it's a great market. We we truly are in the uh, number one real estate market in the country right now for good and bad. It's a it's an interesting time to be here. It's uh, the number one issue in the Bay Area right now is housing um, and the cost of housing being driven up by an influx of um, new tech workers and with lots and lots of money. Um, when you're doing a, a multi-million dollar residential development, how do you 
go through the market analysis to know that that's going to be a profitable yeah venture. well so i we have um tools you know we have our spreadsheets um that we use um i've lived in san francisco for 25 years and i'm a real estate guy and i watch it and i um always looking at things and kind of have a sense of the market. I have a realtor I work with for 15 years um, that we bounce ideas off of. I have a couple of realtors actually that we work with. Um, so we analyze it and um, see what works and what doesn't. Um, I think at the moment, everything works in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> there's just a, there's a, a shortage of housing and at every level. Um, so just about anything you build, you know, you will, you build it, they'll come, um, and everything gets sold with multiple offers and most things all cash. Um, you know, we'll sell a house for $3 million and someone will write a check and they'll probably be 28 years old. <laughs> so yeah. it's in a pretty rarefied place. It's a, it's a challenging place to do development. Um, it's not for the faint of heart by any means. Um, so, uh, at the moment we're doing these high end, um, one and two unit type projects. And it's what we've been doing for the last number of years. And um, I think I'm finally learning um, what it really means to be a developer. And at the end, it's, it really is about financing and where money comes from. And um, the goal for the next year or two is to try to change our approach to projects um, where we're providing 100% of the equity to, required to get construction financing to where we're providing a... a small portion of equity, you know, 20 or 25% so that we can do more projects and bringing in outside money. And I think that, um, at the end of the day, that's kind of key to taking it to the next step, maybe doing multifamily housing, um, or more projects at the same time. So when you say a hundred, hundred percent equity, that means that you're using your own personal property or business properties. Well, we're using our collateral. I mean, using our own money. Um, if you have a million dollar project, um, that's all in land and architecture, construction costs, soft costs. Um, you need 25 or 30% of that in cash somewhere in the project, usually the land, to get a bank to lend you the construction financing. So on a million dollar project, you need $250,000. Unfortunately, where I live, um, it's not a million dollars. It's a million dollars to buy the land and a million dollars to build. And so you need you know, 500, 600, 700, $800,000 in cash just to get in the door. Um, and um, that's hard, obviously, for anybody, for most of us. So um, I want to get it to the point where I can borrow or have an investor bring in five or 600 or $700,000 of that required equity. Um, that's still, again, just that 20 or 25% of the project cost. You still are getting a bank loan. So what does it take to, to get to that level? What, what's, is it just finding that investor to do that? I, I think it's, I think it really is. I think it's relationships, um, finding people that are willing to invest. Um, I think they're, I think it's again, in where I live in San Francisco, it's a high net worth place right now. And there's a lot of people with a lot of money and you just have to find them. And they're all looking for a place to put and, it. And they're looking, you know, <laughs> and real estate at the end of the day can return a pretty high level of investment or a high level of return. Um, I think we would expect to pay someone, you know, one and a half to two times their investment. If someone invests $500,000, they're going to walk away with close to a million when they're done, you know. And so it's relatively high risk, but high, very, very high return. Now, when so, you have an investor like that, how much, how much um, say do they have in what actually happens? Um, hopefully very little. Yeah. So uh, your plan is to basically pure investment yeah. and we take, we, we design it, we build it, we sell yes. it and then we give your money back. Yes. Plus. Yes. Um, you know, you asked how do we vet projects? Um, you know, a little bit of his experience, this lot that we bought last year, um, two units, which in San Francisco will turn into condominiums and sell them individually, typically to two people. Um, we had our realtor run comps for, condominiums in that neighborhood and he came back with 10 or 12 recent sales um, three the top three sales in terms of value per square foot were our projects so we have a bit of a track record to be able to identify that you know our projects actually do work and I think like a lot of design focused architects who get into this um, you have to have a belief that design sells 
um, we, you and I offline were talking about Jonathan Siegel in San Diego, who I think for people like me is a bit of a hero. Um, fantastic architect, great designer, and someone who's never had a client in 25 years and is very proud of it and um, yeah. done very well for himself. So I, I think that you have to have faith that design adds value. And I think in our market it does. I mean, clearly San Francisco is known for its Victorians, but um, people like modern construction for the most part. Um, clients do, neighbors don't. <laughs> um, so we think that design sells, and we think that we can add value. But um, I've always thought about that we're wearing three hats in this in this game that we play. We have an architect's hat and a builder's hat and a developer's hat, and. I think, unfortunately, a lot of times that the architect hat's the biggest and it weighs kind of heavy and you're always trying to have to test yourself on not just designing for the sake of design. Um, we do it a little bit, I think, and probably more than a little bit on some projects. And um, it's what we do. It allows us to do design that we are proud of. Um, it attracts more projects, I hope, by getting design that's good and that gets attention. Um, but I'm not sure that it's the smartest thing as a development sometimes. And we're always asking ourselves, you know, what could we have done on that project, that last project? That, um, what could we not have done and gotten the same returns? You know, could we have done a less, less detailing? And we do a lot of custom steel work and materials and you know, a lot of things not off the shelf. And, and, uh, but if it's selling for more than anything else, then you have to assume that it was worth it. Um, but we are asking ourselves all the time, can we just do a little bit less, you know, a little bit more straightforward construction sometimes, but we keep, keep designing. How, how do you market the projects once you've designed them and built them? How do you, how do you sell them? Um, we use a realtor. I mean, we have a, a realtor we've worked with for a long time and, and, uh, have a lot of faith in him and he has a, he's great at what he does. And, um, so we put it in the hands of the realtor and, and we've thought about, should we get involved in that? And uh, I think we're already doing a lot. And uh, I couldn't do as good a job as he does at what he does. So we leave that to the realtors. It's yeah. always a bit painful, and you have to pay them. You know, they get paid as much as we do sometimes in a, yeah. for a few weeks' work. But um, in in the market we're in, things sell in about a week, two weeks. Um, if something's on the market for thirty days, then something's wrong. So. Now, would you would you recommend uh, development to architects? Maybe a young architect coming in is this something that that they should be striving for? Absolutely, I think so. Um, I'm Why? a big boost. I'm a big booster of it. Well, I I think it's um, one. It's about making a living. Um, I think that it's about putting yourself in a situation to do what it is you've been trained to do the best you can. Um, and we all know of all the constraints that are on a typical architecture project, um, whether it's client, budget, site, schedule, all sorts of things. So um, if you can take the client out of the equation, I think you have a lot more freedom. Um, our best projects are the ones that we've done with no clients, I think. We have a few good client projects, but um, the design freedom is really is, is pretty key. Um, the financial freedom is wonderful. I mean, why did I reach out to you and why are we doing this? It's entrepreneur architect. And I think this yeah. is kind of the pinnacle of, of how one is an entrepreneur architect. You know, I've listened to not all hundred of your podcasts, but enough of them to where, you know, it's all wonderful to design a piece of furniture and market it or sell a service or change your business from providing architectural service to some other form of consulting services, write a book, whatever some of your other topics are. But at the end of the day, um, you know, building, designing and building buildings is what we've been trained to do. And if we can do it in a way that uh, elevates the craft and uh, makes you a good living, I think we should do it. <laughs> yeah. And if you do it and if you do it like Jonathan Siegel, it's the ultimate in passive income. Absolutely. I mean, most like of his income is coming from rental income at this absolutely. point. Absolutely. He keeps it. Yeah. We yeah. haven't done that. We 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 try. We want to. Um, it's hopefully what we do in the future, but we've always bought and sold, and a lot of it is just because of the. Excuse me. What we're buying, what we're building, is not rental property, um, and it's hard to hold on to a you know really expensive property in a hot market that someone willing to write a check for a lot of money. So, yeah, yeah. If if you had, um, I, I you know I think it's probably not difficult for a, a young architect coming in to sort of plan on this and kind of build their way up to doing. Development, you yeah. know, sort of 
start small, do these small little projects, Absolutely. do some, some residential flips, kind of renovate and flip, make some money, yep. do it again and again and again. But what about the, the architects that are in their 40s and 50s who've always dreamed of doing this? Yes. And have never done it. Yes. They're just, I, they're just afraid of doing it. Or, or they're at the point in their lives where they have families and they have commitments. What would you say to them? To, what is the one thing that they could do to sort of push their way in the right direction? Right. I think you just have to decide you want to do it. I think that the money's out there. Um, in the end, developments, you hear this a lot. Development's not about money, but at the end of the day, it is about money. You have to, you have, to have enough money to get something going. Um, I think in other markets than the Bay Area where I live, um, it's possible to get pretty creative about acquiring property, um, making a deal with someone, partnering with someone, finding someone who has a, has a uh, maybe somewhat distressed property or challenged property, um, and using your creativity to solve a problem of that challenged property, and you know maybe partnering with a landowner, um, or buying something run down. Um, and uh, I started like probably a lot of people. You know, we borrowed money from friends and family and bought a kind of semi-rundown building and lived in it and improved it, kept it for a few years, sold it, made a little money, got the next one, um, and kind of slowly grew up from relatively small projects to now you know, pretty significant projects. So it is a step-by-step -step process, but um, I think you have to really want to do it. I, I Back to Jonathan Siegel for a second, you know, I, he's, he's wonderful on the lecture circuit. He does a great talk and um, saw him here in San Francisco a couple of years ago and there was 150 people in the room all came to hear what he had to say and and uh, I, I remember walking out of that that talk thinking that you know here's 150 architects all came here to hear um, him preach his story and how do I do this and I think at the end of the day there's only a, a couple a handful in that room that really could do it and why I'm not 100% sure I think architects are a bit conservative by nature um, you, you definitely have to be willing to take some risks. And as you said, you get a couple kids and a house and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to risk it all. Yeah. So, it comes, comes down to fear. Yeah. I yeah. think a lot. And I guess I've just trained myself to, uh, have to live through that boom and bust cycle. Um, and it really is. I mean, we, we, you know, have points in time when there's no money in the bank and you're actually looking for money. And then six months later, there's a pile of money in the bank that you then go and invest in the next thing. And it's, it's a bit of a boom and bust cycle. Um, I think the goal to bring in outside investors is to level that out, um, to not have that personal boom and bust, but you have to be willing to, to live through it. I guess right. I, for better or worse, train my wife to also live through it, which <laughs> is maybe one of the most challenging parts of it all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the life of an architect yes, it uh, and, is. and the life of an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And, you know, and, yeah, even if you're not doing development, it's the life of an architect. So yeah. really at the front end of the economy. So, so the first step is commitment. If you want to do it, you have to, you have to commit to it, not just Absolutely. say, oh, someday I'm going to do it. It's okay. I'm going to do this. And you have to label yourself a developer, even if you didn't do it yet. Absolutely. The first step is saying, okay, I am a developer. This is what I am going to do. And, and then you start doing it. You start moving yeah. in that direction. You start, yeah beating the beating the sidewalks and start meeting people and learning how it works I think so um, I think also that I mean we're fortunate because I have the construction background we have the construction resources so we can do both the design and construction um, I think of the sort of trinity of development is maybe four really four parts it's um, architecture construction um, real estate and money um, and we have two of the four that we can do sort of in-house and wholesale. Um, and then through a long-term relationship with the realtor, we have a pretty good, I guess, discounted rate that we get for selling because we've given him a lot of work. Um, so how does an architect who's not a contractor do this? You know, and I'm assuming at a relatively modest scale project, but I think we've all been around construction enough and um, most of us could manage a construction project. Like you say, you do enhanced project management for specific clients and you're doing what a contractor does. You know, we can put budgets together and you can manage subcontractors. Um, most people can do that if they want to. Um, I imagine time is a big question for a lot of people. Yeah. But, um, you have to make that decision and there's probably a bit of sacrifice during, during the process for the first couple of projects. Yeah. So it comes, comes down to breaking through the fear, 
building some relationships and just doing it. Yeah, I did. Um, I kind of lied in my my origin story where I, I did actually go out and get a job uh, in the middle of uh, the 1994 recession. I think I worked for about six weeks before I got another project and decided I could quit. But uh, but ended up becoming friends with the, the guy that I went to work for. And, and he was an architect who, who was a developer, but he was sort of quiet about it. But at the time, I think he owned about two or 300 units of rental housing in San Francisco. And uh, four or five years later, um, a friend of mine and I really wanted to start doing more of our own development. And so we took this guy out to lunch. His name was Donald McDonald, a bit infamous around here. Um, and we said, Donald, we, uh, we really want to do development, you know, and we, well, what do we do? What do we got to do to get started? And he just sat there and kind of leaned back and took a sip of his beer and said, buy a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. That's about all he had to say. It's like, buy a lot. Go out yeah. and find a lot and figure out a way to buy it. And that's how you start being a developer. Yeah. Um, once you get the lot, be smart, design a building, you know, get a loan. Yeah, it's and, the first step. It's the first step is buy the lot. And he really, he didn't have much more to say about it. <laughs> that's very good advice. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll end it on that. I think, okay. uh, I think that's a, a great, a great story. Uh, Jim, your studio is Zach DeVito architecture yes. uh, and construction. Yes. Um, your, your world on the internet is Zach And yes. it's a Z A C K D E V I T O. Jim, thank yeah. you very much. For your right, dedication Mark. to the profession and thanks for sharing your knowledge here today on the entree architect podcast have a great thanksgiving yeah you too thank you thanks mark i want you to share this one i want you to send this to all of your friends episode 102 go to entrearchitect.com slash episode 102 get that link and send it to all of your architect friends and share the knowledge spread the word Tell everybody you know about Entree Architect. Put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, and email everybody you know. And, you know, I, I appreciate your support for what I'm doing here, and I thank you so much for spreading the word. You can get complete show notes and a direct link to download this specific episode at EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 102. And the all-new EntreeArchitect.com is coming soon. It's going to be all new. We're in the middle of rebuilding everything. We're scrapping it and rebuilding it from the ground up. An all new website, a new blog, a new newsletter maybe, maybe even some changes here at the podcast. And Entree Architect Academy is getting an overhaul as well. Every month there's going to be training, discussion, resources, everything you need to build a better business. For details on how and when and why to enroll at Entree Architect Academy, sign up for the newsletter at entrearchitect.com slash newsletter. That's the Entree Architect Report. That's my free weekly newsletter. Subscribers are going to be the first to know about everything happening here at Entree Architect. So sign up at entrearchitect.com slash newsletter. I am so excited about what's happening here and I don't want you to miss any of it. So subscribe right now, entrearchitect.com slash newsletter. My name is Mark Arlapage and I am an entrepreneur architect and I encourage you to go share everything you know. See you next week and I thank you for listening. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well, well buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm where do we begin we don't even know what type of business to formalize as is it an llc is it an llp like how are taxes i mean the list is astronomical <laughs> Season 1 featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris 
owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.